In any state in life, in every place you live, whoever you are, you, by virtue of being a person, have access to these treasures and goods. And so everything is open to you in terms of meaningful encounters that will enrich your life, deepen your faith, and nourish your soul. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. The feminine genius, a term coined by Pope St. John Paul II, has become something of a buzzword in the Catholic world. But has the fullness of femininity been exhausted? In a new collection of 17 essays entitled With All Her Mind, A Call to the Intellectual Life, written by Catholic women of diverse backgrounds and vocations, you will find a call to pursue what is too often excluded from our picture of femininity, the intellectual life. Following Mary, the seat of wisdom who treasured the words of the shepherds and pondered them in her heart, with all her mind, shows how the feminine genius involves both affectivity and active intellectual engagement. With practical advice and personal testimonies, with practical advice and personal testimonies, and featuring a foreword by celebrated scholar Tracy Rowland, this collection opens readers to the endlessly unique ways for a woman to follow the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord with all her soul, with all her heart, and with all her mind. In this episode, Acton's research project coordinator, Sarah Negri, is joined by guests Dr. Jennifer Frey and Amanda Achman, two of the 17 contributors to With All Her Mind. They discuss the importance of having an intellectual life, both as women and as human beings in general, touching on such topics as the value of contemplation for both intellectual and spiritual formation, the integrity of the human person, leisure and work in the academic realm, the nature of a liberal education, and interior freedom. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome to Act in Line. I'm Sarah Negri, Research Project Coordinator at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by special guests Jennifer Frey and Amanda Achtman. Jennifer Frey, Ph.D., has just been named inaugural dean of the brand-new Honors College at the University of Tulsa, a position she will assume on July 1st. She is currently Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina and Fellow of the Institute for Humane Ecology at the Catholic University of America. She has written numerous academic essays on virtue and human agency, has edited three books, and frequently writes and lectures for non-academic audiences. She is also the host of the literature, philosophy, and theology podcast titled Sacred and Profane Love. Amanda Ochtman is pursuing a degree in Judaic Studies and Jewish-Christian Relations at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. She recently served as the senior advisor to a Canadian parliamentarian, working to prevent the expansion of euthanasia to persons living with disability or mental illness. 
Both Jen and Amanda are contributors to With All Her Mind, a recently published collection of essays on the topic of the intellectual life by Catholic women from a variety of backgrounds and occupations. Today, we'll be diving into that topic and hearing from our guests their thoughts on the subject, as well as some highlights from their own contributions to the book. Jen and Amanda, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. So I'd like to begin um, with some of the questions from the book, from the authors and the contributors. We can use that sort of as a launching pad for discussions about the Catholic intellectual vocation and specifically the feminine intellectual vocation. Um, But more of a general question to begin with, what would each of you say you would define the intellectual vocation as? And do you think there's such a thing as a distinctively feminine intellectual vocation? Jen, we can start with you. Well, for me, the intellectual life, right, is is at its core um, contemplative, right? So it's it's not um, it's not really a space of work as I would define it, because I understand the intellectual life as just pursuing truth, uh, really truth under the name of wisdom, right? So kind of uh, higher, more general truths. And, um, you know, thinking about your life as ordered to that and ordered around it um, so that you, um, you know, it, it kind of has um, a special organizing structural role in your life. Um, and I think about it uh, in terms of study, where I think of study in a contemplative vein. Um, And in terms of what's particularly feminine about it, I mean, I don't think that there's any one way that women pursue the intellectual life. Uh, I'm a mother of six kids. So the way that it looks for me is more erratic (laughs) than probably it would look for someone who um, is not trying to run a large family. Um, but I, I just think anyone who's living the intellectual life is someone who, uh, loves the truth, right. Is, is eager to pursue it, is constantly making space for contemplation and is modeling that life for others, right. Whether it's your students or your children, um, or, or maybe even, even in a much broader way, depending on the platform, but that's the way that I understand it. Amanda, what are your thoughts? When I think of the intellectual life, I think of the adventure of delighting in the truth and especially about doing so in the company of historical friends. This is the phrase I love to use for saints and heroes and martyrs and all kinds of persons throughout history who help make my own life deeper and richer and in a sense accompany me so that my life is not only my own, but it has continuity in the quest for all that is good and true over over time. And as for what it is to um, have a sort of feminine dimension to this, I, I think simply the character of a woman doing it is, is all that is necessary. There isn't much more to it than that. The fact that a woman has an intellectual life uh, means that there's a particular nature and a distinctive character to it. And so we don't need to go to any extraordinary lengths to bring our femininity to bear on it. It happens quite naturally, and it can't actually be otherwise. 
I love that, by the way, Amanda, just saying like, you know, it's enough to see women doing it. I think that's so critical. I, I mean, um, I think when I was young and I was always a bookworm, I was always bookish. Um, but I think when I was young, you know, the thing that I didn't really see were female exemplars of the intellectual life. It was, it was only much later that I could connect myself, um, to people, to women who were doing it. Um, and noticing that they were just doing it in very, very different ways, you know, and that was incredibly liberating for me, right? That not everyone is Dorothy Day or Hildegard of Bingen or Elizabeth Anscombe that we all, you know, there are all these different ways that women can and have lived an intellectual life. Um, and it just is so important to, uh, to foreground that. Right. Because, because for young women, especially it just opens up imaginative possibilities. Right. And and that's really what we need. I love what you say about the exemplars, because uh, I remember actually, and this is a a tie in to the Acton Institute and specifically Acton University that uh, when I attended Acton University several years ago, uh, Michael Miller was giving a talk and he spoke about uh, John Paul II and how John Paul II had said, that um, the fundamental error of socialism is anthropological in nature. It gets the human person wrong. And I thought this was a great insight into human nature and the human person. And I wanted to start learning from those who got the human person right. And so I set out, where are the exemplars who get the human person right? And what does it mean to be a person after all? So I started to find these very elegant uh, and articulate uh, explanations of the nature of the person being openness toward transcendence or openness to reality. And eventually I thought, well, what does the open to reality or open to transcendence person eat for breakfast? How can I know how to actually do that? And it was that question that led me really to, uh, to two women, to Simone Weil, who, who Mm. you talk about, and also to Eddie Hilsom and these two very open to reality uh, young women with a rather, both with a quite eclectic uh, biography became for me some some early historical friends in living the questions and in learning what it means to uh, be a woman with a particular disposition towards study and toward a kind of sense of responsibility for the world. I love that. I, I just love that. Yeah, I like that a lot too, especially your your phrasing of historical friends. There's so much we can learn um, from women and and just people in general that have gone before. Uh, and I was specifically reminded of one quote by um, St. Edith Stein when you were talking about just by the fact that you are a woman in the intellectual space, um, pursuing contemplation, pursuing study, there's this this presence that you provide. You don't have to contribute anything else necessarily Simply the ontological reality of being a woman in this field is enough. Um, And Edith Stein said, the world does not need what women have, it needs what women are. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but there's this this idea of you just have to be who you are and become more of who you are because this intellectual call, this intellectual vocation um, is something that we're all made for. So Jen, like you were saying, women in every walk of life, um, whether you're a mother, whether you're religious or young, young professional, any kind of, um, walk that you find yourself in, you can pursue this because it's, 
it's universal to our human nature. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough that I can say with confidence, you know, having women in intellectual spaces, it does change those spaces. And it's, it's hard to generalize, but you just notice it. Right. And I don't think we reflect on this enough or clearly enough. You know, a lot of times when we talk about representation and and diversity and the importance of having women in the room, it's sort of just like a matter of equality or social justice. And we don't reflect on, uh, we, we, we don't reflect enough on like why beyond that, right. Is it good to, to have women there? And, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm just interested in this question of how, of how the dynamic changes, because it does change and it changes in ways that I think are important. And I do think that women, um, are in bringing themselves right in just bringing themselves are bringing something good, uh, something that should be valued, um, something that's like good, you know, good in itself. Um, and, and I, uh, yeah. So I, I just love that quote. Yeah, that's actually a question I wanted to ask both of you as well. You, you anticipated me. Um, there's a line from the book which struck me as just very interesting and in kind of getting to the heart of this, this difficulty of equality um, and women's role in the space that they're in. Uh, it's from the chapter An Integrated Mind and Heart by Sister Teresa Lethea Noble. And she writes that in secular spheres... Equality is often emphasized to the extent of ignoring women's potentially unique contributions to the intellectual life. And in some faith-based contexts, women's unique contributions can be overly emphasized and stereotyped to the point that they're de facto diminished. So how do we find a balance between um, this leveling that happens when you say you're just pursuing equality and diversity sort of for its own sake? Um, and then on the other hand, overemphasizing the unique contributions of women to the point where you're sort of shoehorning them into a specific role. Um, you know, when you emphasize maternity or receptivity or sensitivity or these elements of the feminine genius, as John Paul II says, when you emphasize those elements, there's a truth there and there is a unique gift that women bring there. But it's not the whole picture. You know, the whole picture is just them as an individual, as a person, as a being in that space contributes something. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that tension and maybe where you see some of that being resolved. Amanda, do you have any thoughts on that? One thing that comes to mind right away is there are many chapters throughout this book quoting men. There's no aversion to engaging with male philosophers or the intellectual tradition of the church. There's a kind of effortlessness to it. And I think the same is done within the church, broadly speaking, that there are uh, women doctors of the church, there are uh, women saints, and, and there's Mary, and there are all kinds of examples. And we go and we look to each one as a bearer of testimony, as someone who bears witness to the truth, as someone who has something to teach us about virtue, because that is the value that each one brings also in their personal particularity. So at the beginning of this book and the, in the forward, there's a discussion of how part of a woman's character is maybe to go to the personalist dimension. And of course the tradition of Christian personalism is, is really notable here. What is it about a woman's sensitivity to biography or to a person's whole story 
that is something that can bring life and enliven any space. Um, and so I think, yeah, it, it's a kind of naturalness and effortlessness that will prevent things from being overly contrived. And we just don't have to try so hard because we're all uh, engaged in the same endeavor together. Yeah. I mean, I think the stereotype threat is very real, you know, that people kind of have a hard time letting you be an individual and sort of want to put you in a box, right? Um, prior to really you even being able to, um, to express, you know, who you are as an individual person. And this happens and in so many ways, you get stereotyped as a woman, you get stereotyped as a Catholic, you get stereotyped as this or that. Um, and, you know, I, I I'm constantly surprising people, <laughs> right? Because I'm not whatever they expected, right? And I think, again, um, you know, we, 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 we can kind of generalize in some ways about the way, about the unique gifts that women bring to the intellectual life, but we want to do it in a way that doesn't create stereotype threat. And you're always kind of trying to thread that needle. Um, you know, inevitably, right, in, in various spaces, but including intellectual spaces, what you will find is that um, women are able to kind of integrate different voices. Um, they're, they're sort of better at picking up emotional cues and social cues and things like this. Um, they, you know, but then they also might be, um, less willing to, uh, just dominate a conversation or things like that. I mean, you can, you can, you can see these dynamics play out in, in real life. I think that women bring in just bringing themselves, bring a certain set of gifts that may express themselves differently. Um, but I, I just think in a general way, right. If we, if we think about the two halves of humanity, men and women, as in some sense, complementary, however, we want to cash that out. Um, and then we think about that specifically in terms of the intellectual life, we will of course want both halves of humanity present. And I think that it's just, a, and one, one reason why I think this volume and, and hopefully this volume will be the first in a, in a series of volumes or projects that further explore the issue. Um, one way that women can tend to uh, experience stereotype threat is, you know, just thinking of them, just thinking of their value in terms of domestic work. And I emphasize work there, right? They can be reduced to their utility value. And that is always wrong. <laughs> it's always wrong in a moral sense to reduce anyone to their utility value. And it's always wrong to suppress the intellectual in another human person, because it is that desire to know that is at the root of our communion with God. And when we do that to women, which we have done through the centuries again and again, and continue to do today, we are diminishing them as human beings and we are negatively impacting their spiritual life. 
And we need to be very serious about that fact. We need to be serious in recognizing that wrong and that harm. And I think that's another part of the conversation that we don't stop to think about enough, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. I'd like to pivot from that into your chapter, Jen, actually, where you discuss contemplation more in depth and you oppose leisure to work and you talk about the intellectual life as not being work. So you talked about domestic work um, and reducing a person to utility value, that being problematic for sure. Do you think, and you're feel free to take as much time as you want on this regarding your chapter, because I'd love to just dig into what you see contemplation and leisure as, what you see the connection there to be. Um, and also, I'm curious if you think there is an element of work in the intellectual vocation, because academia can be challenging. Um, there's a lot of challenging parts of it. So yeah, if you want to just dive into sort of what you wrote in your chapter about that and the specific way that women can help to reclaim leisure. Yeah, so my chapter was called uh, The School of Leisure, and I try to kind of lay out what I actually mean by leisure. Um, and for me, leisure is the opposite of work, right? So it's it's basically a different way of being and living. So when we are truly inhabiting a space of leisure, we're not just resting so that we can get back to the real meaningful stuff of work. Um, leisure is sort of a receptive mode of being, right? Um, and it's a space of intrinsic value. So the way that I define leisure and leisure, you enjoy or you take delight in what is intrinsically true, good, or beautiful. Um, and in our own tradition, in the Catholic intellectual tradition, but also in the Western philosophical tradition more broadly, leisure is very explicitly connected to contemplation, right? Where contemplation is understood as beholding in vision an object of love. So it's a kind of loving vision. And, um, you know, there is this connection between love and attention. So the idea is that what we love directs, right, where our attention goes. And that takes a certain direction in study, right, in the pursuit of knowledge. We tend to want to know more about the things that we love or care for as see as valuable, right? So when I talk about contemplation, it's not neutral, right? Um, and actually, in order for contemplation not to become disordered, it requires proper habits of love, desire, feeling, imagination, perception, and judgment. And all of that is worked out in a space of leisure rather than work, right? And so I talk about the role of silence and the role of prayer. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's sort of how I understand leisure as um, a space of intrinsic value as opposed to a space of utility. Uh, the second part of the question, I think, was about whether or not academia is work. Uh, it's a lot of work. I mean, I just have to get real. And, and right now you're talking to someone who is basically a dean already, <laughs> even though I'm, I don't officially start my job until July 1st. My whole life right now is Zoom meetings uh, with with every aspect of the behemoth that is the university and trying to get an honors college up and running. Uh, not quite ex nihilo, but a little bit closer to that 
<laughs> you know, than, uh, than the other end. Um, it's a lot of work, right? It's, I mean, and, and you have to get real about it. And I think that, um, one thing that I have tried to do in my own research is to, as it were, stand up for contemplation, uh, to get people, to get contemporary secular philosophers to notice that, um, contemplation is central to the moral life. It's central to the cultivation of practical wisdom. Um, but I think it's not enough to, well, first and foremost, you have to get people to see the value of the thing. But then secondly, you have to take a good hard look at institutional structures and think about the fact that in academia, it's real hard to contemplate. And that seems like a huge structural failing <laughs> that we need to address. And, you know, I have been given this incredible gift of being able to start a college of my own, like a real college, a collegium. And first and foremost, right, for me is making sure that there is plenty of space for contemplation um, and thinking about ways that you can uh, make that happen for young people, both in terms of helping them to see the value and importance of it, but also helping them to live it out. Like we live in a world of monetized distraction, monetized distraction. And we have to get very serious about how we help young people navigate that. And that's something that I'm thinking a lot about right now. Incentives matter a lot. And the uh, university is almost a business in some ways. It seems like it oh, yeah. has taken over that space that should be set aside for contemplation. Yes. It's a very strange sort of not-for-profit that's focused on profit. <laughs> yeah. Amanda, what are your thoughts in this space of leisure and work with regard to the intellectual and academic life? Well, I love your chapter and the themes that that come up in it. Uh, of course, it's the themes of festivity and, and faith, and you've got Simone Weil and Romano Guardini and and the and Joseph Pieper. These are all excellent points of departure for gaining access to how. Uh, this can basically animate a person's imagination to enter in because it takes a little bit of accompaniment in our world of distractions to to know where to begin. And and all of these texts and thinkers are are really uh, inviting and and hospitable of the struggle it is in the modern world to enter into this. So I, I love that, and um, it was reminding me um, what you said. Also, of uh, how Simone Weil has this text on the right use of school studies being mm -hmm. to increase the faculty of attention requisite for prayer. Yes. And that text got me through a chemistry course that was a requirement. <laughs> and I was not going to pass this chemistry course until I realized that it had something to do with increasing my capacity for attention, the same kind of attention that I would want to have in other domains of life for subjects that I care more about. And so it's, it can, that's a, a very concrete way that it can be very ordering uh, of our habits to decide what is, what is worthwhile. There's also a part in the book where uh, it's brought up that it, it can be very hard for us to be alone with ourselves if we don't know ourselves or what, who ourself is really supposed to be after all. And I think that's, that's so true that if we are uh, not so practiced in that uh, life of interiority, it can be rather startling 
and even confronting. And I think a sort of point of warning for women in the intellectual life is once you give yourself the time to reflect on your life and to enter into that interiority, you may confront things that you've never dealt with before. And it may propel you to not only new insights and and new uh, reflections, but also to um, certain wounds, certain uh, sorrows. And those are all aspects of the intellectual life that that are part of the, the drama, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it just goes back to this point about its spiritual dimensions um, and and the need for for all women, no matter what their specific you know vocation is, for all women to have developed the requisite habits of contemplation and reflection so that they can grow in the spiritual life and just the dangers of reducing them, to, you know, vectors of meeting our material needs. Um, that's a, that's an inhuman reduction that is going on. And, and even, um, even, even full-time mothers, in fact, maybe especially full-time mothers, uh, need to be given that space of leisure, like true leisure. They need to be given that space of true leisure. And the, and the sad truth is that many of them are not given that space um, under the, the, the guise of, well, your real vocation is, is work. Um, the, it is not the real vocation of any human being to work, right? We are made for a life that is bigger than work. Of course, we all work. But if we are reduced to our work, something, something's gone really wrong. I feel like there's a connection here where we're drawing the link between contemplation and the spiritual formation. Um, and ultimately that culminates in integration of the person, right? We're supposed to be integrated people, heart, mind, body, soul. We're supposed to be united as a being. And there's something I think that women can offer their in a very unique way, we have certain integrative capacities that allow us to sort of pull together different threads of our own being and of other people to help kind of make sense of these different facets and synthesize in a way. Um, and I also think there's a connection here to freedom, interior freedom. And we talk a lot about freedom at the Acton Institute, but both of you also mention it in your own chapters. Uh, Amanda, you say that you met a particular cloistered nun who taught you about freedom and responsibility through her life of prayer and contemplation, saying that even though she's um, closed up in this cloister, so there's a, an appearance of lack of freedom, she actually feels more free than many people outside of it. Um, and Jen, you also talk about when you hold up Mary as a model of contemplation, you say it was her life of prayer and study that allowed her to freely consent to the word of God becoming flesh in her. Um, so I'd love to hear both your thoughts on that connection between the intellectual life, the freedom of the mind with true freedom of the whole human person. So I am obsessed with this, <laughs> so I'll try not to go on too long. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of liberal learning, right, the, the whole idea of higher, truly higher education and liberal education is about the cultivation of an interior freedom, right? Making you free 
so that you can live a flourishing life, right? But what is the nature of that interior freedom? The idea is that we are forming, like if, if we're doing liberal education well, we are forming young men and women to have the habits of mind and, and I would say habits of, of heart and desire as well. Um, cause the mind doesn't in fact operate on its own. Um, I would say we need to be cultivating these habits that lead to interior freedom, right? And so when, when we order our study to the pursuit of wisdom, to the appreciation and enjoyment of what is good and beautiful. That is a kind of very obvious spiritual formation. And I just mean spiritual in the everyday sense of it's, it's forming our specifically rational capacities, right? Because even our capacities for feeling and desire are, are rational in a human being. And, and, and also forming our perception and our memory and our imagination and the, and the whole thing, it's a kind of formation, right? And so when we talk about liberal learning as, you know, making a human free, we are talking about that kind of freedom to know the truth, right? And pursue what is good and, and rest in what is beautiful. That's the kind of freedom that we're really after. It's not a mere freedom from constraints, right? It's not a freedom of indifference. And, um, you know, I've dedicated my life to that (laughs) kind of, kind of learning kind of freedom. And what I can tell you in an absolutely unqualified way is that young people are starving for that. And very few people are offering it. People are offering them an education that is yoked to work. And it is just a profound disservice to, to, to our, to our youth. Amanda. Yes. I'm also extremely passionate about the topic of freedom and, uh, responsibility and and Acton has played a a big role in my personal formation in this direction. And looking back to those experiences of the cloistered nuns who I met in Poland. And also, uh, I had met some as well in Spain during world youth day. One of them said, um, that, uh, I've been enclosed for 40 years and I'm fine. And that's something that came back to me during COVID, how she had smiled and said this to us. And I thought, whoa. And when I think about freedom and when I think about uh, liberal education, I think, what is the kind of education that prepares us to face up to difficulty? What is the kind of education that is going to help me to suffer well, because every life contains a passion, death, and resurrection. Uh, and so what will be the preparation for that? And even in the, in the microcosm, what enables us, for example, to endure during the pandemic and all the restrictions we faced? Uh, and so during that time, I would think, what are the inner reserves and what are the intellectual resources that I've built up in my life So to be able to contend with these circumstances, which in this case are these, but in another case could be an entirely different set of circumstances. And in my chapter, I write a lot about the history of Poland and participating in the Terzio Millennio Seminar and how facing up to people whose lives were in many ways interrupted and put into a major upheaval 
And we learn from that because I think sometimes we, we kind of apply a, a sort of prosperity gospel attitude to vocation and as if it's all about us and what, what we choose, uh, when really there, there are a lot of events that we are called to face up to that are, are not matters of sheer volunteerism. And so I think the education in freedom is about having the ability to cultivate that fortitude that will enable us to suffer uh, with a kind of uh, Christian spirit and also to ask the fundamental questions, what is my life actually about? This, I think, is one of the most freeing things to do. And every student, every person deserves to take reflective distance and ask, what is my life actually about? And I have to say that I went on a walk with a friend I went on a hike in my hometown, beautiful Calgary in the Alberta Rocky Mountains. And after several hours of, of this hike, my friend turned to me and said, what do you want to want? And I thought this was such an interesting question. It wasn't just what do you want, which seems to be the question that the world asks all the time. But this was more like, how do you want to order your soul? What do you want to desire actually? And that changed the question. And it, it's kind of a, a recurring one where when I step away, uh, I can really confront myself and say, what do I want my life to actually be about? And how can I have that fortitude to withstand the difficulties that will surely come my way? Can I just respond to that? Because I mean, there's so much there that is so wise, um, especially, you know, you talk about needing fortitude and, and that's true, right? In order to pursue the truth, you actually do need fortitude. You also need temperance. Like some people, um, you know, John Henry Newman, for example, and the idea of a university. And of course I love Newman and I've been profoundly influenced, uh, by those lectures, but he sort of suggests that in the university, we can only focus on intellectual virtue. And I think that's, I think that's just simply wrong. Um, we cannot neglect, um, I mean, in the intellectual life, we actually need moral virtue. Um, there's no real wisdom apart from it. And, um, and so we need to think about ways that we can, um, help our students grow in in that respect as well. Uh, recognizing the obvious limitations. Um, but, but I think it's enough to just recognize, uh, it's, it's importance, um, in, in the intellectual life. Um, and it just kind of, I mean, for me, again, when you think about the nature of liberal learning as cultivating this interior freedom, you're talking about something that is setting you up for life. It's setting you up for any kind of modicum of success just as a human person. And the tragedy of higher education today is that we market it as a credentialing for work. And so we ask 18 year olds, I mean, increasingly we ask 16 and 17 year olds, what do you want to major in where that's a career choice, right? What kind of work do you want to do? They are in no position to know, honestly. The questions that they need to be asking are questions like, who are you? What kind of thing is a human being? 
right? What sort of goods are fulfilling for human beings? What sort of life is most worth living, et cetera, right? Those are the questions that are prior to the question about work. And so it just, the loss of contemplation, the loss of the value of contemplation is directly tied, in my opinion, to the loss of value of liberal learning and to a misunderstanding of the nature of freedom. They're all bound up together in my view. Yeah, so good. That's super important. Amanda, you talked a little bit about the importance of meeting people through your studies, meeting historical friends and sharing with people that you encounter this idea of like asking these tough questions, searching for answers. You also talk in your chapter about just the importance of having those experiences in general, having a wide variety of experiences and receiving actively the treasures of our intellectual and religious traditions in order to pass them on to others. Can you talk a little bit more about maybe some of your own experiences, which I know have been pretty varied in your academic and intellectual life, and the importance of having those experiences and learning from them for your own formation? Sure. I think, first of all, I'll say that maybe the way that we're speaking here would give the impression that uh, this demands a lot of time or a lot of money or a lot of uh, flexibility that some people might say, frankly, I don't have. I have to hold down this job. I, I don't feel free to move to this other place. I have student debt, whatever circumstances people may find themselves in. And I think the message uh, that I would give and the message of this book is that in any state in life, in every place you live, whoever you are, you, by virtue of being a person, have access to these treasures and goods. And so everything is open to you in terms of meaningful encounters that will enrich your life, deepen your faith, and nourish your soul. How that looks will be varied, but there is no poor or indifferent place. Uh, that's how uh, the poet Rainer Maria Rilke would put it. He says, if your everyday life seems poor, do not blame it blame yourself that you're not a poet enough to call forth its riches. <laughs> and we can all be a poet enough to call forth life's riches. We're all up to the task. And so I think throughout my life, the experiences I've had uh, meeting refugees, uh, hearing the stories of, of people who have come to Canada, these have made a huge impression on me. Traveling has given me access, being in different contexts where the, the life is much uh, different from, from it, it all gives perspective and an openness to new horizons. But I, I would really drive home that anyone has access to this. Sometimes that's through books, through writing, through study of history, through participation in the life of the church. This is something that anyone can tap into. It, it demands creativity and audacity, but nobody has an excuse to opt out of intellectual life. Yeah, I love that. I think you both have really you know, made that point really well, that the universality of the intellectual life is really there for everybody. I love that. And this book as well is very good about that. We're getting close to the end here, but I'd love to hear from each of you a specific research project that you're working on or a recent, you know, interest, a scholarly interest that you've been pursuing lately. Jen, we can start with you. Well, um, I'm currently finishing up a volume on Practical Wisdom. And my own contribution to that volume is about how habits of contemplation uh, play a role 
in both the development and acquisition and then eventually exercise of practical wisdom. So it's basically a way of me trying to reconcile the platonic half of myself with the Aristotelian half of myself. <laughs> I love that. And so it's a lot of Simone Bay and Iris Murdoch meeting Elizabeth Anscombe <laughs> and Philippa Foote. It's a really fun I'm just having a blast working on it. Um, in part because I'm it's mostly women I'm writing about and, um, kind of like trying to bring action and contemplation back together, which, uh, which feels very Dominican. So it's just like, it's just really honestly, one of the funnest projects that I've, that I've worked on in a long time. Yeah. That sounds awesome. What about you, Amanda? Mostly these days, I'm very much focused on working to prevent euthanasia in Canada. So the Canadian government legalized euthanasia in 2016. And uh, a few years after that, I was working with a member of parliament uh, trying to prevent the expansion on the basis of disability and mental illness. And uh, it could be very soon where Canadians for whom mental illness is the sole condition um, could be uh, euthanized. And this weighs heavily on my heart, uh, in particular due to some personalist and, um, yeah, personalist experiences of my own. I had a very, very close and dear relationship with my grandfather. Uh, he lived with my family for several years from the time he was 89 until he died at 96. And he had a, an immense influence on my life and a, a real treasure, uh, I really treasure that relationship. And so uh, I hope to help promote the value of the elderly. And also, as I hear and see the stories of so much suffering and anguish and the lack of adequate mental health supports and palliative care, I see plenty of work, plenty of cultural work to engage in, in humanizing the culture. And I can see in God's providence, the convergence of my studies in philosophy of the human person and uh, history and travel, all bringing to bear on on these topics within healthcare and medicine. So that's mostly what, what keeps me busy these days. That's very important. Thank you so much for your work on that. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much, Jen and Amanda, both. Your insights were really inspiring. And I, yeah, I feel encouraged in my own pursuit of the intellectual life. And I hope that all of our listeners are as well. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for bringing us together. It's really wonderful. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.